scripture reading this morning is from the third chapter of the letter of Paul to the Philippians, found on page 187 in the New Testament of your pew Bible. So we're starting at Philippians 3, verse 4b. We're not doing 4a, so skip ahead to b. Uh, All the way through verse 14. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to, reg- I have come to regard as a loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading and hearing of this word. Continuing this morning in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in the 33rd verse, Jesus said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent to them his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in Scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it was amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on the stone will be broken into pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they realized he was speaking about them. 
They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because the crowds regarded him as a prophet. This is the gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. Help us, O Lord, to hear what it is you are trying to say to us. You've given us a whole week of things that have happened, of people in our lives, of stuff to do, of quiet contemplation. And now, here at the beginning of another week, we're trying to figure out what it is you're trying to say to us. Help us to hear it, maybe in this time together, so that we can do your will and bring glory to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we continue this morning in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, it's useful to consider for a moment the larger context for today's parable from Jesus. Last Sunday's Gospel reading began with a question put to Jesus by the chief priests and the elders. They said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, the things that they're referring to point particularly to what happened in verse 12 of Matthew 21. And that was when Jesus came flying into the temple and drove out all who were buying and selling there, flipping over the tables and saying, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. What's more, the blind, the lame, the children all came to Jesus there in the temple, and the crowd of the unwanted and the unwashed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! To say that the temple authorities were a little put off is to put it mildly. It is a few days before Jesus is arrested, beaten, crucified. And so reading the context of these last few days, is it is any wonder that they wanted him eliminated. He was upsetting the order of things, the right to power, the levers to privilege, the traditions of caste. Jesus then tells the prophetic parable that we just read about a landowner with a vineyard which he awarded under contract to renters, and the agreement was to cultivate the fields and to care and bring in the harvest and to give to him a portion of what they brought in at the conclusion of the season. Except the tenants began to think that the vineyard was theirs. They hung pictures in the manor house of their families. They repainted some of the wine presses and outbuildings. They let their kids play in the fields. And as they dressed the vines and cultivated the soil over time, they began to think of the vineyard as their vineyard. There was no landlord in sight. In fact, they told their neighbors that they owned the place and even put up a little sign at the gate, Welcome to our place. But as the story goes, we learn that their egos got the best of them. They beat up and killed the servants who had been sent to collect the rent at the end of the season. The landlord figures that they will respect his son, but when the son arrives, they do the same to him. Of course, Jesus knows his audience. 
to a person, every single one of the listeners were landlords. The chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, they had properties scattered throughout Judea. And so immediately they sympathize in this parable with the landowner who is aggrieved. And so when he says, what do you think is going to happen? They shout, oh, they're going to put those miserable wretches to death and they're going to lease it to good tenants who will pay with the harvest at the right season. Now, before I rush in to condemn those wicked tenants, let me confess something. It's my own affinity for their pride. I understand them. I completely understand them. Why? Ask any neighbor on my block. Who owns 2528 West 110th Street? You know what they're going to say? To a person, they're going to say, some fat old guy that dresses up like a priest when he goes to work. <laughs> and his really nice wife, Danny. Or they'll say, if they know who I am, Danny and Jonathan own 2528 West 110th Street, except that's not true. It's not. I receive monthly correspondence from someone called Mr. Cooper. I picture a kindly old man sitting in a general store in a rocking chair and children running in to buy candy saying, Hi, Mr. Cooper! Except I know Mr. Cooper isn't actually a person. It's the name of my mortgage company. Mr. Cooper bought my mortgage a few years back from another group called Penny Mac. Who comes up with the name for mortgage companies? Penny Mac. It was my other mortgage company. Now Mr. Cooper owns my mortgage company. And every time I paid the monthly mortgage, in the back of my head I'd sing, Miss Penny Mac, 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 all dressed in black, black. But that was my problem. Anyway, who owns 2528? In reality, Mr. Cooper owns 2528. Even though there's not a single person on my block who knows what Mr. Cooper looks like. I love it when you fill out those forms, right? Do you rent or own? Well, actually, neither. Um, I, I, I'm paying off a mortgage somewhere when I'm in my late 90s. Um, I'll be able to say I own, but in the meantime, I just keep making payments. Neither me, but Mr. Cooper has the house. He just lets me live there as long as I send him money every month, right? If I stop sending him money, guess what? He's going to take the whole house and tell Danny and her chubby-colored husband to go live somewhere else. Just get out. But even knowing that, if somebody asks me, hey, is that your house? I confidently say, yeah, that's my house. We're like teenage kids. Every parent, I think, has had this argument at one point or another, right? Get out of my room. It's my room. Yeah, right, parents? What do you think? You paying the mortgage on this kid? Yeah? Do you want to keep a mattress? What about clothes? You want to wander around cold and naked? It's not your room. If you're smart, you don't go there. I wasn't always smart because they screamed to the contrary. No, it's mine. It's mine. They're like the tenants when the owner sends his son. This is mine. 
You have no right to it. And our voices resonate with the chief priests, right? And the Pharisees and the elders. And the echo bounces off the marble walls of the temple. And as it dies off, they stand there in a building they did not build. Their investments that were gifted them for their office, which they did not receive by their own merit. It was by honor and inheritance. Matthew tells us that they heard the parable, and after their screams died down, that the tenants were evil, they suddenly realized that Jesus was talking about them. Ouch. The cold irony of their plot to kill the owner's son. By whose authority? By whose authority, they ask? What makes you think that this is yours? That's what makes encounters with Jesus really, really difficult. He keeps holding a mirror in front of us where we can see things as they truly are, clearly. Jesus isn't trying to be mean. Quite the contrary. Jesus is trying to help us see things as they truly are so that we can start from what is real instead of tricking ourselves into believing a lie and in the end looking foolish. People who believe lies, frankly, are easily manipulated. Once you believe a couple of lies, believing another one is no big deal all the time. How many commercials are dedicated to making us believe that we have any real agency whatsoever, right? Take charge of your life. I haven't had charge of my life since ever. Or let yourself be treated to what you deserve. That's really enticing, but I'm not exactly sure what I deserve. Like the priests and elders, we begin to think that it's ours. We have a right to it. By what authority? Who gave you this authority? A few weeks ago, I brought you the stewardship theme for 2024. A way of seeing. A way of seeing. It's an invitation, perhaps, to see things differently, or more importantly, to maybe see things as they truly are. What if we saw everything? All of it. What if we saw it as a gift? What of our homes, our furnishings, our friendships, our world, even our life itself, What if we just saw it as something entrusted to us? Not something that we deserve or earn or even have the right to possess, but something loaned to us for our care, our enjoyment, our stewardship. What if all of it was nothing less than a gift? given by one who loves us and wants us to enjoy it, who trusts us to handle things with wisdom and joy and with appreciation of the full knowledge of the giver's intent. 
That is what stewardship means, you know. A steward is someone who curates on behalf of another, who handles the property of another as the owner would truly like it to be handled. A steward in a fine restaurant does not own the wine collection. The sommelier understands the wine, selects the wine, commends the wine, pours the wine to the benefit of the owner and the enjoyment of the guests. We're invited to be stewards, sommeliers of our own collection, the collection of God's creation, for the benefit of the owner and for the joy of others. The Apostle Paul's own words about his message take on that same form. He says, I could have made claim to things that are true. I could list my credentials, my birth, my adherence to tradition, my education, my awards, my honors, my qualifications, mine, 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 except that would not be fully accurate, writes Paul. While all these things about me are true, my true value is found in the grace God has given me through Christ. Whatever gains I had, he writes, I consider them as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may obtain the resurrection. It's a whole new way of seeing. This past week, in my Monday musing, I talked about a misattributed quote about climbing the ladder of success your whole life and then finding out the ladder was leaning against the wrong building. That uh, quote had been attributed to Thomas Merton, and I was really disappointed because the more I researched, the more I found out that Thomas Merton probably didn't say that. And my disappointment was because of my affection for Thomas Merton, a writer who was very influential early in my ministerial career. Thomas Merton, if you don't know, was an American monk who had spent most of his life in a Trappist monastery in Kentucky. Trappist monks take a vow of silence. They are not permitted to speak. I gave a friend of mine a button that said, ask me about my vow of silence. It's not that they never speak, they just only recite the Psalms in morning prayers, and then once they've continued with, completed with their morning prayers, then they go out and work in the fields and in the kitchen and in the facilities of the monastery in service to one another, and by their silence, they hope they learn the value of receiving and listening. Being a Trappist monk, I think I was fascinated by Thomas Merton because I think for me that would be nothing but torture to have to keep my fool mouth shut. But I was profoundly influenced by his writings. I encountered a particular quote from Thomas Merton about the first time 
that he was allowed to go into town, into Louisville, Kentucky, in order to conduct business for the monastery. And when he was allowed to go into town, he was permitted to speak insofar as the transacted business required him to speak with people in the town. And so for the first time, literally in years, he's in a town with other people and granted the right to converse with them. And I, I saw them bring long quotes to the pulpit. I kind of figure that if I have to read to you, I'm kind of wasting your time because you can go home and read whatever you want. Uh, but this is an exception. It's a few paragraphs. And I offer them because they were so very meaningful to me the first and every subsequent time I've read them. Thomas Merton wrote, In Louisville, on the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people. That they were mine and I was theirs. That we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation into a special world. The sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being human. A member of a race in which God Himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me now that I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around, shining like the sun. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin or desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only I could tell them to see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There'd be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. But this cannot be seen, only believed and understood by a particular gift. And that, my friends, that gift is a way of seeing. Amen. Let us please stand and affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. It is in the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, 
and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, 